Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast. We keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of October 2nd through the 4th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Uh, I hope you guys are ready, because if September was a relatively sleepy month, sang chis performance aside, October is a whole different ballgame and overpacked, some might say. Uh, this first weekend alone, we have at least three different movies competing for the biggest news of the week, not to mention three other films having developments that otherwise would be a top story in any other week. Uh, so in a jam-packed episode, uh, let's go ahead and hop straight into the domestic numbers. The first major story is the release of Venom Let There Be Carnage, which predictably came in the top of the box office charts. Now, a lot of people, myself included, have poked fun at Sony for moving the film's release date multiple times. Uh, obviously, it would move off of the October 2020 release date due to the pandemic, uh, before being pushed back to June 25th, 2021. And then when F9 pushed out about a month or so, um, it, in order to not compete against it, it pushed back to September 17th, and then September 25th. And then, as fears of the Delta variant came up, it ended up pushing back to October 15th, uh, right in the middle of Bond and Dune here in the States, which would not be an ideal situation, uh, before the success of Shang-Chi in Labor Day weekend brought it back, you know, with only about a month or so, uh, heads up, uh, brought it back to the October 1st release date this past weekend. So that's a total of six different release dates that this film had. However, that maneuvering seems to have paid off, even if it seemed a little bit frantic from the outside. Uh, Venom opened to a stunning $90.1 million in 4,225 theaters. That's a per theater average of $21,325, beating out expectations of about $65 to $70 million for the weekend, based off of the pre-sales being about maybe 85% of Sang-Chi. Now, that is good enough to actually have it be the highest domestic opening weekend of post-pandemic era, beating out Black Widow's $80 million opening weekend. Um, However, the real craziness is when you compare it to the first Venom film. That one, opening back in 2018 on the similar weekend, opened to only $80.2 million. That's right, a post-pandemic sequel has actually beaten the pre-pandemic prequel by about $10 million. Again, a film released post-pandemic has beaten its prequel opening weekend from pre-pandemic. I'll let that sink in. Now, I won't say that you know the pandemic is over at this point. It's clearly not. Get vaccinated and your booster shots if you're able to. Um, but you know, I think we're well on our way to that point uh, if movies continue uh, performing the way they have recently. Uh, it did fall short, you know, of the all-time October opening weekend, which would have gone to 2019, which gone, which is still with 2019's Joker, opened the same weekend to 96 million dollars. But 90 million is still good for the second highest weekend in October of all time. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if in the future, this first weekend of October, you know, leading into um, leading into Halloween, uh, becomes essentially a dedicated slot for darker anti-hero or villainous films from comic book franchises. I could see, you know, uh, Blade from the MCU taking this date in the future. Now, one interesting facet to look at here is the power of a theatrical exclusive release. Um, Not to harp on it too much, but uh, Black Widow opened to $13.2 million on Thursday previews, but ended up you know, only about 80.3 millions over three days for an internal multiplier, you know, the ratio between Thursday previews to the total weekend numbers uh, of about 6.08 times, you know, the Thursday previews. Venom, on the other hand, started out lower, only $11.5, $11.6 million op- on Thursday, but 
but you know had better day-over-day drops to end up with a 90 million dot number, an internal multiplier of 7.75x. Uh, the drops, you know, for Venom Friday, including Thursday numbers, uh, to Saturday was 15%, and then Saturday to Sunday 33%. In comparison, Black Widow dropped 41% Saturday to Sun, uh, Friday to Saturday, um, and then 25% Saturday to Sunday. Other theatrical-only films this summer that have had internal uh, their internal multipliers are you know Sang Chi's eight point five times you know its Thursday previews or F 9s nine point four five times its theater its its Thursday numbers. Um, it's hard to have that with you know the it's harder to you get know, a real sense uh, of the uh, Thursday numbers versus um you know versus otherwise for other films because of the way that they were scheduled they didn't actually have Thursday previews for some of these films. Um, for for you know the innate releases now in any case though this tells me you know black widow you know having a six you know a six x multiplier from thursday to total weekend everyone else being at least seven closer to eight or nine x um suggests that you know the theatrical model is definitely going to stay at least for films that open real at, that open at least 50 million dollars or so um and it's here to stick around i think we can expect to see spider-man no way home sticking with its release date in december due to this performance of venom um and, you know, also staying theatrical only as a result. Now, Venom has never been the critics' favorite. Uh, the 2018 film had a 30% uh, from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, and this one currently sits at about 58%. However, it is a general audience favorite. The first one, in comparison, had an 81% audience score, and this one currently sits at 85%, um, and both have a cinema score of B-. Not terrible, not great, um, but, you know, definitely acceptable for, you know, a, a kind of turn your brain off and just have some fun film. Um, I personally haven't seen the film myself, you know, was a bit busy with errands this weekend to do so, but, you know, I got tickets to see it on Friday with the wife. Now, minor spoiler territory that I was made aware of, you know, can't really avoid it at this point, um, if you didn't see the opening weekend. Um, apparently, the post credit scene actually is a big reason for the hype here and larger implications for Sony's Spider-Man universe. I'll leave it at that, but if you know what I'm talking about, uh, that would certainly make sense as to why there was even more hype around this one than the first one. Now, speaking of the multiplier for the first film ended up being up uh, 2.66x, uh, grossing about $213 million domestically and $853 million worldwide, largely carried by China, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, the similar multiplier here would put Venom Let There Be Carnage at $239.4 million. Most analysts I've seen online suggest that you know major competition from Bond next week and then Dune in a couple more weeks uh, means that you know the legs aren't going to be quite as long and maybe a two hundred to two twenty five million dollar total would be more reasonable for Venom. But still, that can be considered a success given that the budget for this is about you know hundred and ten million dollars. Um, you know the first film had about hundred million dollars, so definitely great budget control here. Um, and you know being the second film ever to reach uh, two hundred million, uh, the first we'll talk about in a little. Bit. It, um, post-pandemic, it will certainly be a feather in their cap. Also worth noting, Venom is also a, a fairly short film at only about 92 minutes or so, 97 minutes or so, um, which is definitely help it get more screenings in coming weeks versus some of the films like Bond or Doom, which have two and a half hour run times. You can get you know two screenings of Venom in for you know one screening of uh, of, of one of those other films for theaters, which uh, you know very lucrative to them. In addition, the fact that this is a PG-13 rated film as opposed to other comic book films that are a little bit darker, such as you know the Suicide Squad from this past summer. Um, probably helped as well. While I don't have an exact breakdown of how many people who saw this film were under 13 years old, um, the under 12s were the biggest advocates of this film with an 88% positive recommend rate um, for this film. So, you know, definitely a factor here that, of just that broad appeal with the, with the younger crowd. 
Now, internationally, I believe the only market Venom has opened in so far is Russia, where it opened to $13.8 million. The best debut in Russia, actually, post-pandemic, and the best opening for Sony in the country ever. Uh, no surprise, though, given that it was act- Russia was actually the second biggest country overseas for the first Venom film behind China. Um, with that, Venom now sits at 100 $3.9 million worldwide, um, definitely crossing that $100 million mark in its first weekend. Uh, we don't yet have a China release date, but it looks like you know most of the world will have it set for the weekend of October 15th. Um, now moving on to domestic. Now moving on to the rest of the domestic numbers. Uh, the second place film this weekend was United Artists Adams Family Two. That was a day and date release on VOD as well. Uh, this one grossed 18 million in 4,207 theaters per theater average of 4,280. That's in line with the box office post forecast of about 12, 22 million dollars for the weekend. Interestingly, as opposed to other United Artists releases uh, from the pandemic that were day and date release, this one didn't suffer too much in terms of theater chains holding out from screening it. Uh, perhaps they're desperate for more kid-friendly animated fare um, as opposed to Venom as kind of programming. I don't think there's really anything out there except maybe Paw Patrol, which you know isn't going to capture every kid out there. Uh, the first now, you know, in any case, it was the largest opening for animation film post-pandemic to date. Uh, the first film was a bit of a surprise as well, making thirty million dollars in its opening weekend uh, in 2019 and lagging out to just shy of hundred million for a 3.23x multiplier. A similar multiplier here would put Adam's Family two to fifty-eight million dollars or so, though with day and date it might be a little bit lower. Assuming that it has a similar budget to the first film, which is about $24 million, um, that should be enough for profitability, not including any international revenue that comes in for this as well. In third place, we have Shang-Chi in its fifth weekend. Naturally, with some now solid competition, uh, Dale Evan Hansen didn't count. Uh, it's, you know, its week-over-week drop has increased, dropping 54% to $6 million in 3,455 theaters, per theater average of $1,747. However, it is notable that it has officially crossed the $200 million mark with $206.1 million in its fifth weekend to be the first film post-pandemic to do so. Combined with the international take this weekend, it now sits at 180. million abroad and $386.9 million lifetime, passing Black Widow's $378.8 million worldwide total. One other fun fact, now that September is done, we can conclusively say that Shang-Chi represented about 54.7% of total box office revenue last month. In fourth place, we have another new film, The Many Saints of New York, the prequel to The Sopranos, uh, which had a day and date release on HBO Max and opened in theaters to $4.6 million in 3,181 theaters, per theater average of $1,462. Definitely an underperformance here. It was forecasted for $7-16 million. Word of mouth wasn't that great, C-plus on cinema score, and it seems to target that generally older demographic who has not been great about coming back to theaters yet. Factoring that this is, you know, The Sopranos were a TV series, I'd imagine the primary audience for this uh, would want the people who saw The Sopranos would probably also want to see it on television. And Samba TV suggests that you know only a million households saw this opening weekend, which suggests the poor word of mouth didn't help it out so much. Um, off of a budget of $50 million or so, this doesn't look like it was a success uh, for this film as well. 
Wrapping up the top five is the second weekend of Dear Evan Hansen, which had a disastrous 67% drop down to $2.4 million in 3,364 theaters per theater average of 735. Uh, running total so far is $11.8 million. This one is definitely not having a surprise greatest showman style performance here. I wouldn't be surprised if its theaters dropped down in half, you know, over 1,500, especially as theaters try to make room for more Venom screenings and also James Bond coming next week. Outside the top five, couple interesting stories. We have Candyman in number seven, breaking another record, the highest grossing horror film directed by a woman, uh, previously held by the 1989 Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert at $57 million. Nia DaCosta's film currently sits at $58.9 million. Down at number 9, Lionsgate released a documentary called The Jesus Music, which opened in 249 theaters to $548,000 per theater average of 2204 the third highest per theater average of the weekend. And then Titan, the uh, winner of the Palme d'Or, the top award from the Cannes Film Festival this year, was released by Neon in 433,000 theaters in 562, uh, th- $433,000 in 562 theaters per theater average of $949. Not inherently impressive numbers on their own, but it is the highest-grossing opening weekend of a Palm winner in 17 years since Michael Moore's 2004 documentary Fahrenheit 9/11, opening in uh, in 23.9 million dollars. Titan is also the second highest opening of a French film since the 2005 film High Tension, opening into 689 thousand dollars. Also, one of the more amusing domestic stories this week is actually not a release, but a non-release. Uh, with Amazon picking up Hotel Transylvania 4 for release on Prime, it looks like they just never updated the release date for that. So when this weekend came around, there were a bunch of upset parents, presumably because they had upset children, uh, who were angrily tweeting out at Amazon support trying to figure out what's up. So yeah, that was a thing. Overall, total box office this week sits at $128.3 million, the highest weekend post-pandemic to date. While it's clearly well above 2020's numbers, compared to the pre-pandemic 2019 numbers, we're only 15% behind the same weekend this year when Joker led a $150 million box office, again opening to about $96 million. As we'll talk about in a second, the big release this coming week is the is the newest Bond film, No Time to Die, which is forecast to make between seventy and ninety five million dollars, according to box office pros. If you're optimistic, it could very well even be the first film to cross a hundred million dollars opening weekend. Uh, Cinemark also noted that this was their highest single day box office post pandemic and likely the highest October week opening for them of all time. Before we get to Bond's performance, though, you know, I want to take a quick message, second to say a message from a friend of the show, Dakota, who is the host of the Contra Zoom podcast. While for the most part here on Box Office Watch, we talk about the business of filmmaking, over on Contra Zoom, Dakota goes back and forth about film itself. He's been doing great work covering various film festivals up in Canada as of late, and I've even made a few appearances on his podcast myself. Uh, I'll include links to his show in the show notes. Hi, this is Dakota, host of ContraZoom Pod, where we go back and forth about film. I am obsessed with movies. I could talk about them all day, and if you're like me, then you'll love my podcast. Every week we take a new topic, whether it's ranking a director's filmography, covering major film festivals, or getting way into Oscar season. While every week is different, we do have some recurring topics, like our Make Remake series looking at an original film and its remake, or our very popular A History Of program, taking an in-depth look, looking at some of the biggest companies involved in film, including Criterion, A24, and Neon. It isn't all super serious topics, though, as we always need to play catch-up with all the hottest Marvel Cinematic Universe news and general pop culture goings-on. 
There's something for every kind of movie lover, whether you want reviews, interviews, or in-depth conversations. ContraZoomPod is found on all podcatcher apps, and visit ContraZoomPod.com for even more information. All right. Thanks, Dakota. Now, moving on to international numbers. In, uh, you know, the other top story this week were the continued success of Dune and the stellar opening of No Time to Die Abroad. First up, Dune. Uh, to date, Dune has, in its third weekend, crossed the $100 million mark at $100.3 million in 32 markets. Uh, the drop this weekend was 49% given the increased competition, but it is still pacing ahead of Tenet by 11%, Black Widow by 58%, and Blade Runner 2049 by 80%. According to one analyst, a performance this strong in Europe would normally mean a $600 million worldwide total in pre-pandemic times. However, with HBO Max in play and the week of performance in Asia so far, the estimated total theatrical uh, run for this looks like it'll be in the $350 to $400 million range, which is still respectable given the $165 million production budget. Kind of funny how the top two releases of Warner Brothers this year ended up being the two legendary films of Godzilla vs. Kong and Dune when they, were vi- when they very nearly lost that relationship due to the HBO Max announcement last December. Uh, in France, where No Time to Die has not yet released, Dune had its third weekend on top of the charts, grossing $2 million, $2 million tickets sold to date and becoming the second highest number of tickets sold for the year behind local film Camelot. Uh, tickets went on sale this morning here in the States uh, as I record, and I got my IMAX tickets for the Sunday it comes out, so I'm super pumped there. Uh, moving along to Bond, No Time to Die has had a phenomenal sewing, opening the $119.1 million. Last week, we mentioned the target to beat was $100 million, and it definitely blew past that. Still, a bit sort of specters $140 million, but what can you do in the pandemic? Uh, this was done across 54 markets, with the top market, of course, being the United Kingdom, with a $34.8 million opening, with a, you know, near, which, with a near, uh, you know, including a $007 million on its opening day on Friday. Uh, or Thursday, uh, the sixth biggest opening of all time there and the biggest three-day weekend of the franchise to date. Uh, other UK records broken include the highest single box office day for Bond in history, uh, the fourth highest Saturday of all time, highest universal release, and owning 87% of total UK market on Saturday. Uh, over in Germany, we saw $14.7 million as the second highest market, uh, the largest pandemic weekend to date. Uh, Japan had $5.8 million, Denmark 5.3, and Korea 4.6. Now, compared to Dune in certain markets, it certainly is outperforming in pretty much every market, actually. Uh, for example, in Germany, that $14.7 million for Bonn compares to only $4.9 million for Dune. Denmark has $5.3 million for Bonn versus $1.1 million for Dune, and so on. Currently, it's rated uh, certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, 85%. Uh, it certainly does help this film out, I think. Uh, the big specter, of course, is whether or not Bond will break even here. Reportedly, it has a $300 million production budget due to all the delays, and not even counting the multiple marketing pushes, uh, the break-even point is reportedly $900 million worldwide, which I don't know if that's fully accurate or not, but you know, it is the most common number I see being thrown out there. I have no idea how much is going to end up making internationally, but it's also a case where even if this one does lose money uh, for MZM, uh, you know, given the circumstances and you know with the upcoming acquisition and the legacy of the Bond name in general, I don't think it's likely that you know one bad performance from Bond because you know of the pandemic is not going to make make them hesitant to make more Bonds in the future. I'm sure we'll get another Bond after this, even if it is no longer Daniel Craig. 
Uh, other international headlines, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad cost $167.3 million worldwide, which narrowly has it beating out Wonder Woman 1984 as being the lowest grossing title of the DC Universe. Uh, IMAX hits its best weekend ever uh, in October thanks to Bond and Venom, and the best weekend post-pandemic, I believe for sure, um, you know, uh, with $30 million worldwide. Uh, Amazon launched the an ad-based streaming service IMDb TV in the UK, and Taiwan loosened its COVID restrictions after having many ups and downs over the pandemic after being an early success. Uh, movie theaters there are now able to be filled to capacity. Now, while Bond's $119 million certainly is a headliner in and of itself, it actually was not the highest grossing film globally this weekend, if you can believe that. That belt goes to the Chinese propaganda film The Battle at Lake Changjin, uh, opening on, on the October 1st national holiday of China. Uh, the three-hour three hour war film uh, telling the story of the Battle of Chosun Reservoir, uh, as it's known here in the, in the States, as part of the Korean War, opened $230 million in China with a 9.4, 9.5 score on various social media platforms from audiences. Uh, the estimated finish, according to Maoyan, is going to be $714 million for its full run, which will be the second highest total of the year behind Lunar New Year opener High Mom. Of course, assuming that No Way Home uh, does not surpass that. Uh, this one made $12.9 million in IMAX as the third best IMAX uh, uh, total for a local film. Uh, with Monday numbers from China already at $75.1 million, the total is currently at $311.9 million so far and could very well do $500 million within its first week. $500 million would put it at the fourth best film of the year so far. Of course, this plays in the larger cultural struggle between China and the rest of the world as it comes to entertainment for the, within the Chinese market, uh, as it becomes more and more lucrative, but also more independent of foreign films. While we do have Bond and Dune sent to release later this month over there, we don't yet have a release for Venom, which, you know, ahead of Russia was the number one uh, market for China, made $270 million out of the $853 million total there in 2018. It could very well be the, the difference of Venom being one of the top grossing worldwide films if it's able to release in China or not. Now, with that ridiculously high number, Lake Changjin is obviously the number one film in China this weekend. Uh, in number two, we have another patriotic film, the third anthology film in the My People series. Uh, this time, My People, My Country, My Parents. Uh, this one is following up 2019's My People, My Country, which made $450 million in 2019, and in 2020's My People, My Homeland, making $422 million. Uh, this latest entry made $77 million domestically over the weekend, which, adding to the weekend numbers, now sits at $91 million dollars so far um i don't know if it'll get to the 400 million dollar range but it still definitely would be you know a fairly strong performer i think now, third through fifth place in China were all children's animated films, presumably, you know, for the little kids who couldn't, you know, deal with going to see a war movie. Um, third was Dear Tutu Operation T-Rex, made $3.5 million. Fourth was uh, Little Canned Man, also $3.5 million. And then Gold Beak in fifth with $2.7 million U.S. dollars. Obviously, while much of the focus in the coming weeks will be on Bond and Dune and Venom as they either release or see how they or see how their legs perform, uh, we'll definitely continue to keep an eye on Lake Changjin to see where it ends its run at, likely among the top-grossing films of the year. 
Now, you think with all those major headlines around box office totals, we'd be out of news to talk about. But, you know, there actually were a couple more big stories of the cover in the miscellaneous category. First up, we have the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit. Now, after about two months of being in the public eye, ScarJo and Disney lawyers have settled after she sued the House of Mouse for breach of contract over the day and date release of Black Widow on Disney+, Plus when she was allegedly promised a exclusive theatrical release. While allegedly she had been gunning for about $80 million in damages, they ended up settling on $40 million, uh, according to sources, which seems about right, you know, given negotiations and tactics. As far as, you know, what it means for the industry, well, we likely won't see the full impact in the public eye moving forward, but as we discussed previously, this likely means that Disney will go back over contracts they either have outstanding or especially any future contracts uh, to make sure they include a clause regarding day and date releases. Uh, we saw in, you know, the reported deals they made with Emily Blunt and uh, Emma Stone for Jungle Cruise 2 and Cruella 2 respectively um, you know to make sure they didn't sue and, and join ScarJo in suing um, now while I don't think ScarJo's you know claims that Black Widow you know would have made, done north of a billion dollars if not for Disney Plus um, it's currently about 379 million uh, in theaters plus a reported 125 from Premier Access um, the strong performance of Sanchi, you know a relatively lesser known Marvel character um, you know uh, in a theatrical only release which pushed Disney to you know push the Eternals and other films to theatrical only for the rest of the year probably weakened their position um, you know relative to Scar Joe's claims so you know you know, hence, I think this is where the settlement came from. Uh, in addition, their fairly mean initial statement didn't really help Disney in their PR battle. You know, compare that to how people reacted when, you know, they kind of let the leak that Sony were the ones who didn't want to let Spider-Man play in the MCU and kind of like the, the public outrage against that in support of Disney. Um, this time, they were on the other side of that equation here. Now, notably in the statement from Disney, where Chairman Alan Bergman looked forward to collaboration with Scarjo in the future, uh, including on the upcoming Tower of Terror film, as well as her work on the MCU, uh, CEO Bob Chapek didn't really chime in, I think, again, suggesting a lot of these problems in the studio stemming from his leadership. Anyway, another major news items that broke this morning. Last week, we talked about how the IATSE, the Union for Theatrical Stays Employees, uh, overwhelmingly voted, uh, you know, w w broke down negotiations with the AMT with AMPTP, the, the studios, um, over, you know, working conditions for their, for their union members. Um, and they put a vote to the, to their union, uh, to see if they would authorize a strike, uh, over the weekend it came in at 90% of union members, uh, cast their ballots with 98.7 supporting a, a strike. Now this does not mean the strike is happening immediately. Rather, union leadership will go back with this, with this, uh, result to the negotiations, uh, reportedly, uh, on Tuesday, 11 a.m., with the studios um, and you know with this leverage of you know 60,000 potential uh, workers going to the picket lines and stopping work on productions um, this would be the first strike in over the, the union's over 120 year history um, so you know here's the hoping that the negotiations you know uh, go smoothly for everyone involved we're able to come to a quick resolution where everyone's happy now, the last major couple of news items to cover this week. Uh, first, some inside upper-level baseball management stuff. Uh, Bruce Berman, the 24-year CEO of the production company Village Roadshow Pictures, is stepping down. VRP was behind such hits as The Matrix, Joker, Lego Movie, and Edge of Tomorrow, predominantly in agreement and working with Warner Brothers. Uh, Muriel uh, Soria, the animation president of Paramount, uh, is the latest in a series of exits from the studio uh, with Nickelodeon head Ramsey Na Na uh, Nato taking on her duties. 
Now, less so studios, but uh, Christopher Columbus, the director of the Harry Potter films, uh, who was previously attached to the Five Nights at Freddy's film, is no longer working on that project. Jason Bloom didn't comment if anyone new had been brought on, but apparently it's still in development. And speaking of Jason Bloom, uh, with Halloween Kills coming out day and date on Peacock in two weeks, apparently in an interview he said that he was the one who came uh, he came to Peacock about that move instead of them approaching him, uh, which is surprising given that you know horror has been uh, one of the mainstays at box office even during the pandemic period in terms of profitability. Um, but you know if there's someone who I trust to know how to make money off of horror, it's Jason Bloom. He did say also that they would be going back to a traditional traditional theatrical windows after this film. Um, so yeah, uh, in other CEOs giving interviews, Jason Keillor, soon to be gone head of Warner Media, deflected questions regarding where he'd end up in after leaving the studio, such with rumors being he might go back to Amazon or somewhere else in the tech space as opposed to media, which might seem a better fit, you know, given you know what happened with HBO Max. Uh, he does stand by the move, though he also concedes that it could have been executed a little bit better, uh, specifically with talking to talent in over 170 conversations um, and obviously millions of dollars paid out to them. Personal analysis here, while I certainly was not a fan of the move overall, uh, I do have to concede that A, it did make sense for HBO Max given their goal of maximizing subscribers, and B, it did actually help out theaters um, in that it gave them a stable roster of films for the year um, that I don't think, you know, that, you know, were not going to be delayed regardless, you know, even if the pandemic got worse, the studio, the theaters would, you know, assuming studios stayed open, they would still have these these films to show, um, which definitely helped them out, um, you know, even if it capped the potential performance of those films. Um, now, I think a better strategy, and in hindsight, in addition to telling talent in advance, um, which again cost them a pretty penny in negotiations, as well as costing them their relationship with Christopher Nolan, uh, would have been to not commit to a full year, right? Uh, but maybe a few months of it at a time. Um, I think, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, the films that were earliest on in the year, you know, Godzilla vs. Kong aside, generally were the ones who ended up not being that successful or critically acclaimed. Um, meanwhile, you know, the, the films in the end of the year, Dune and The Matrix specifically, um, are the ones who have all the hype around them, who likely will be doing well at the box office, but again, because of HBO Max Day and Day's release, will be capped in their potential performance. So, you know, if they had maybe done the first six months of the year or, or, or you know, every three months coming and say, oh yeah, the next three months we'll do, uh, will be, you know, Day and Day's release on HBO Max, then, you know, that probably uh, would have been better and they could have then had their cake and eat it too with regard to uh, Dune and uh, you know Matrix in the coming months being theatrical only. Alas, that's not the case um, and it's too late to change, point at, change course at this point. Anyway, back to Keeler's comments, he also noted that Warner Brothers plans on spending north of $18 billion in content over the next year for streaming. Another streaming giant putting out lots of money is Apple Studios, uh, which they landed an as-of-yet untitled project about two lone wolf fixers assigned to the same job, with Spider-Man director John Watts writing and directing, and George Clooney and Brad Pitt starring. Uh, reportedly, studios including Sony, Lionsgate, Annapurna, MGM, Universal, Warner Bros., Netflix, and Amazon were all in competition for this film. Uh, no date has been released just yet, but you know definitely follows the trend of Apple trying to gain get into more prestige movie game. More immediately in that game, uh, Netflix is in a good spot, I think, be, with all of their, you know, uh, f 
Oscar contenders coming out uh, in the coming months um, after you know after some near misses in in recent years. Uh, you know, at a recent you know, conference I um, or, or a presentation, Netflix actually released a slide with the top ten watched films, including how many total hours were watched. Uh, in order, you know, we have uh, in top of the list is Bird Box with two hundred eighty-two million hours. That's the twenty eighteen horror film that was beaten to death. Uh, and then we have Extraction from twenty twenty, the Chris Hemsworth action thriller twenty two hundred thirty-one million hours. Uh, the Irisman uh, at two hundred fifteen hours uh, come came in as a four-hour Oscar contender from twenty nineteen. And then 2020's romantic comedy *Kissing Booth 2*, 2,209 million hours. Um, Michael Bay's action film from 2019, starring Ryan Reynolds, *Six Underground*, made 205 million hours watched. Um, that's the top five. Um, and then you know the, the the second half of the top ten are *Spencer Confidential*, *Enola Holmes*, *Army of the Dead*, uh, *The Old Guard*, and *Murder Mystery*. Uh, make of this list of films what you will. And in the final headline, the acclaimed Dungeons & Dragons gaming group Critical Role will be premiering their third campaign uh, in theaters, actually, on October 21st, uh, specifically with Cinemark in about 20 different cities. Pretty interesting out-of-the-box approach from films that are still looking to recover from the pandemic. And with that, that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, no reviews from what I've been watching this week, but next week I still have some stuff. You know, again, I'm going to see Friday. Uh, on Friday, I'm going to see Venom. And also worth noting, I'll be around uh, New York Comic Con uh, on Saturday this weekend. And then finally, if you know my other podcast, Oscar's Death Race podcast, you may know I'm actually part of an online community uh, called the Academy of Death Racers. You know, which you know again goes with the Oscar's Death Race. In the off season, you know, we they actually recently started a movie club where we do sprints of films. You know, five films or so recommended by community members. Uh, for the month of October, I recommended a five-movie sprint consisting of all the James Bond films uh, starring Daniel Craig, including No Time to Die in order to celebrate its release. Um, I'll be doing my best to watch all of those films this coming week uh, with a special episode of the Oscars Death Face podcast sometime next week reviewing all of those films. If you've seen or, or any or all of the Dan- Daniel Craig Bond films and have thoughts about them as Bond, uh, be it as a longtime Bond fan or someone like me entirely new to the franchise, I want to hear from you. Uh, reach out on social media or email or on Discord with any comments about the film, and I'll incorporate those into that episode. And again, with that, that's a wrap for this episode. Suit me ideas for what else I said cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zemo.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find us also on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least tell a friend any of that helps. And if you're extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, letting us make not only this show but all the other podcasts I work on. Links to all that are in the show notes. Uh, also in the show notes will be the links to ContraZoom Pod. Again, make sure you check out the code works. I really think you'll enjoy it. Numbers used in this show come from dnumbers.com. Intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod. You find his stuff at the content of homemusic.io. Editing production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.